Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Yay! Hey, everybody. Welcome to All the Things, the show where we talk about all things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I did it right that time. Yes. Um, I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Yay! Yay. And happy Saturday. We are here once again. We have made it through another week. Somebody needs to say amen. Yes. Amen. <laughs> Thank you for that, that, that amen shout out. And um, helping us on the show tonight and every night and nearly every day. Every day. Is the magical Robert Bontrager. Mr. And we have our first studio guest member miss laura hartley all the way from texas all right there she is <laughs> she's like <laughs> i did not sign up to be on camera yes oh, well welcome boy. welcome we are glad that you are here because you normally watch us from from texas so yes. yes glad to have you this show is brought to you by the center for biblical unity the theology mom podcast yes and family 210 clothing I don't know. I heard. I don't know what's going on. Sorry, right. we're on. We're on live television. You know, we're just so we're gonna, gonna. We're just gonna make go it forward. up as we go along. Yeah. Make it up. Okay, so. Um, I was just watching the replay of that. Yeah. Um. Have you bought your shirt yet? No. That's okay because I bought I? you one. Oh, uh, it's okay. coming! It's coming! It's so I'm so excited. Oh, good. But the bigger question is: Have you bought your shirt yet? Um, yes. Support the Center for Biblical Unity by buying a shirt. One race, one people, one savior, and five dollars from every shirt sale goes directly to the Center for Biblical Unity. Yes, it's a great way to support uh, Monique's effort in getting CFBU off the ground, and um, also just helping us get some, some things going. We have a lot of exciting things coming. We have a lot of exciting things coming. And um, when you go to get a shirt, you can also look at the other shirts that are there and support our family business, Family 210. Yes. Yes. And um, we want to encourage you to, if you want to, another way you can sh support the show is to click on that share button right now. Uh, you can share on social media and let us uh, help Sorry, get the word out. That's all right. Bob's just, we're, just this, the stream is going. It's okay. Yes. That's, yeah. that's all good. So you can just click on the share button and help spread the word about what we are up to here tonight, because we have a very important guest, Dr. Thaddeus Williams, that we're going to bring on here in just a moment. Yes. Uh, you can also join the live conversation on the chat box on YouTube. That's the best place mm -hmm. to chat with us. I love all the check-ins tonight. Um, and look at you. We see y'all. We see y'all. Julie Meyer, she yeah. bought her shirt. Isaac Martin, amen. Look at everybody with the amens. Come on through. Y'all gonna make me get my fan early. Oh, oh there's your friend Caleb. Caleb, yes. Caleb and I go way back. Yes. <laughs> so yes, last week. Maybe two weeks ago, but I really like Caleb. Yes. Um, Keisha yeah. Lewis from Atlanta. Yeah, if you scroll down, Bob, the other direction, there was a whole bunch of check-ins. Gail's checking in from Portland. Oh, she can't scroll. Yes. All right. And then we have um, Nathan Neighbor, my good friend Nathan Neighbor on the, um, not YouTube, what is this, Facebook? Yep. Um, Hello from, to G 
It's okay. Kelly's on Facebook. Center we for have- Biblical Unity. Yes. There it is. We have. Oh, someone's saying hi to me. Hi. <laughs> Christina. Christina McNaughton. Hi, Monique. Thank Somebody you for wants your to work. know if we have fans. We do. Yeah. Hey, yes. Yes. Adjust are- the Georgia coming in. Official. Yes, we do have fans, church y'all. Fans. Now, see, we got to get the fans with the funeral home on the back. And if you know, then I know you know that they got <laughs> a funeral home on the back. Yes, but we are working our way there. Want to say hello to some new viewers, Roger and Stacy Ballard, watching tonight from the great state of Colorado. Giving a hi to Laura Hartley. Okay. Yes. All right. All right. Laura's so, starting to have her fans. All right. <laughs> this is good. Okay. Um, so let's introduce our guest. Okay, so Dr. Thaddeus Williams. He he's pretty awesome. I could be biased, but he you know, I think he's pretty awesome. Um he is a professor at Biola yeah. and um teaches bi- theology. Teaches theology. He has a book coming out. We'll find out all about that. Yep. Confronting injustice without compromising truth. Yes. He has a huge heart for justice issues and but I think bigger than that is his heart for truth. Yeah. And so I'm excited to to have him on. All right. Let's fire up that Zoom machine. And my fan nearby. We can go to our friend, Dr. Thaddeus Williams. There he is. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Good to, have, <laughs> hello. Good to be here. Hello. Hello. All right. So we just going to kick it off. You know, we. Um, you're, you're a busy man. We saw you on the Sean McDowell live stream yes. this week. Yeah. Just this last Wednesday. Got to have a great conversation about social justice and the gospel and got to read some of the feedback on that this morning and it was overwhelming overwhelmingly positive but also got called a bunch of names which i realized like that's kind of par for the course these days so yeah, yeah. it really is it really is there's always going to be somebody who thinks differently <laughs> and feels the there need to is. share their differences <laughs> yes. hopefully they'll be gracious about it yes all right. <laughs> All right. So maybe tell start, but we always like to start off by introducing people to you and let them get to know you a little bit better. Maybe tell us about yourself and your academic background and how you got interested in social justice issues. Sure. I uh, was raised Mormon, which not a lot of people know about me, uh, but my family left the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when I was like five. And that had everything to do with a woman who knew her theology and who took the time to explain lovingly the difference between the Mormon Jesus and the biblical Jesus. Uh, So my folks got saved when I was a wee lad of five years old. And I kind of went along for the ride, went through the motions, got saved when I was 14 uh, from a pit of despair. God and his sovereign grace pulled me out. And I knew I wanted to do uh, theology. I knew I wanted to introduce as many people to the gospel, to the God who saves. Uh, that was pretty a, a vague vision early on. I don't know what that looked like. But over the years, as the Holy Spirit uh, has been authoring my life, uh, that looked like studying theology and becoming a Talbot professor. I teach classes like Foundations of Christian Thought. Uh, Theology 1, Theology 2. We have a brand new class I'm super excited about at Biola University called Gospel, Kingdom, and Culture. And that class came down from on high from the Board of Trustees at Biola said, we want every Biola graduate to, number one, know how to evangelize. How do you share 
the greatest news in the universe. Number two, apologetics. How do you reasonably defend the faith? And number three, how do you speak from a biblical point of view into the hot potato social justice questions of 2020? And so that class launched two semesters ago, and it's eventually uh, going to be uh, embedded in the 30 units of required Bible, which is something I'm very excited about. So yeah, a bit of my academic history. I love theology down to my core. I love systematic theology. I did my PhD at the Freiburg Universiteit of Amsterdam on the problem of evil and the sovereignty of God and how all that fits together. Uh, I got really turned on to justice issues. I mean, man, it's hard to answer a question like that because there's never a time I wasn't. Hmm. Uh, my parents did a great job of instilling me, in me a sense that the Christian worldview has implications for how we treat the poor, how we treat the disenfranchised. Uh, so I was raised, I mean, from the time my parents converted, my mom had a ministry, a gleaning ministry. Uh, so we'd spend time in the potato fields. We'd spend time in the orange orchards of Orange County. And I would work hand in hand with uh, some people who were nowhere near as well off as I was raised and realized that, you know, Christianity and helping people, it's just those two things happen in the same breath. Uh, so the more that developed, that passion over the years, I got to go to Nepal and witness human trafficking, modern day slavery from a firsthand perspective. Mm. I saw slaves working the rice fields and you just sense the, the darkness, the injustice, the, the satanic evil of treating image bearers like anything less than divine image bearers. Uh, and so that kind of took my passion for justice to the next level. And the reason I got involved in, in social justice, thinking deeply about that and what does that look like in, in 2020, I was seeing a lot of my students at Biola University uh, get wrapped up into contemporary social justice movements that turned them from bright-eyed, gospel-proclaiming, young men and women of God into chronically triggered, suspicious, resent-fueled students. And I started to scratch my head and say, what is happening there? there there's, there's a huge shift here. What, what's being called social justice isn't the same thing I was raised on, isn't the same thing I find in scripture. And so that was really the impetus for me to, to dive into writing my book. Um, so there you go. There's a bit of background. Thank you. Now, on our show, we like to make sure we have very clear definitions. And so you've already jumped in talking about justice, injustice, social justice. How are you defining these things? How are you defining justice and injustice? Sure. So let's start where we should start with Scripture. So you see uh, Micah 6, 8. Not what does the Lord suggest of you? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice? Love kindness, walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? So clearly, justice isn't a divine suggestion. It's a divine command. Isaiah 58, verse, verses 8 and 10. Uh, then shall the light break forth like the dawn. Your healing shall spring up speedily if you pour yourself out for the hungry 
satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise from darkness and your gloom as the noonday. So doing biblical justice brings a certain glow, a, a certain gravitas to our spiritual lives. Um, in Jeremiah 22, doing justice is what it actually means to know God. He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well, is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Uh, one final verse, Isaiah 1, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And so scripture is crystal clear from the Old to the New Testaments that justice is not optional for the believer. Now, what do I mean by justice? Biblically, I think a straightforward definition is giving others their due. Justice equals giving others their due. Now, from a biblical worldview perspective, that means you start with the ultimate other, God. God, what is due God? Well, your next breath is due to God. The, the heart thumping in your chest is due to God. Everything good, everything true, everything beautiful, everything just is a gift from God. And so he really is owed all of us. And if we start there, if we start with the fundamental justice question, what is due to God, then our, if we start there vertically, then our horizontal justice becomes something beautiful. It becomes something redemptive. It becomes something healing. But a lot of what's being called justice these days, and this is what I dive into in the book, doesn't start there. And when you don't start there, uh, then you get these slogans, these bumper sticker slogans, you get these waving banners. And so all these promises to give others what they're due, the marginalized they're due, end up hurting a lot more than they actually help. So in the book, just real basically, I break it down between social justice A, the kind that starts with God, that's anchored in scripture, that premieres the gospel at center stage. And then you have in the book what I call social justice B, which does not start with the godhood of God, which knocks the authority of scripture down a peg, uh, which kind of marginalizes the gospel itself. And so that's a, a distinction running through all of my thinking on this. Social justice A, the kind we can all get on board with, and social justice B, the kind that far too many Christians are getting duped by, that's coming from worldview premises that are fundamentally incompatible with scripture. Well, I'd like to <clears throat> kind of dig into that a little bit uh, more because I think that, you know, when we, I, I, I think your, your definition is interesting to me of giving people their due and, and what is due them. It, it, it makes me think about one issue that I see coming up a lot right now in culture about disparities and, you know, how that works is, and how that fits, for example, the wealth gap, uh, is that automatically a justice issue? Is that giving somebody their due? I'm, I'm trying to kind of put some legs on some of the things that you've stated there in your framework. Yeah, so the language these days that's thrown around quite a bit is systemic injustice slash systemic racism. All right, that's a term that's that's blowing up our news feeds on a daily basis. Now, I'm a, I'm a theologian by training, and so let me just approach the question 
from a theological and biblical perspective. Psalm 94 says, don't align yourselves with those who frame injustice by statute. Those who frame injustice by statute. What's going on in a passage like that isn't merely individual sin. It's not just, well, person A sins against person B. It's saying person A is a sinner. He's depraved. If he's in power, he will enshrine his sin through laws and ordinances, through legislation, through systems that treat people like less than the image bearers of God that they are. And so I think biblically, we need to recognize there is such a thing as a category of systemic injustice. And historically, we can recognize there's such a thing as systemic racism. So take the most obvious example to us, which is slavery, which is fundamentally, qualitatively anti-biblical to its core. Why? Because it says, based on my lack of melanin, I'm somehow superior to people with higher melanin levels. And that justifies me treating image bearers of God as if they aren't image bearers, they aren't persons, they're property. That is not just some plantation owner's individual sin, that was systematized in the history of this country. And so, yes, I would argue there is such a thing as systemic injustice, systemic racism. You can move from slavery to Jim Crow. Uh, you can move from Jim Crow segregation into redlining. There's been all kinds of sins that have been supersized, we might say, through the power of law. So that would be my definition of systemic sin, sin that's been supersized through the power of law. Now, having said that, the question today, the way what I call social justice B frames it, is the way to spot any systemic sin, systemic injustice, is you kind of leave sin out of the equation, and the defining criteria is if there's an inequity. If there's an unequal outcome, then according to uh, Ibram X. Kendi, who's the author of the now best-selling book, uh, Stamp from the Beginning, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and a lot of Christians are reading Kendi and just soaking it in like a sponge. We need to be discerning here and recognize that his definition of systemic injustice is very different. He clarifies in Stamp from the Beginning that if there's any disparate outcome, the only conceivable explanation is discrimination. And I think that's where things get really dicey and where a lot of Christians with great intentions uh, get duped into accepting a version of social justice that isn't quite what we would mean from a worldview perspective that starts with scripture. Um, so do you, do you wanna... think though that disparities in and of themselves are inherently a justice issue? I mean, I think that that is an important question because I think that there's many Christians now who are, who are thinking what we need to do is eliminate disparities. We need to eliminate the wealth gap, for example, is, but is that inherently an injustice from a biblical perspective? Yeah, that, that's a great question. The, the short answer is no. The short answer is that there's a lot of disparities that have nothing to do with sinful discrimination. But let me give just a few quick examples. So let's take 
let's take location. If I was born in, say, Appalachia, uh, in, in the mountains of Kentucky, if I was born in uh, the wilderness of Alaska, uh, if I was born in, in the Alaskan tundra or the Montana countryside, just by virtue, regardless of my melanin levels, I'm already at an economic disadvantage um, compared to people born uh, on the coasts. And this isn't just true in 2020. This is true throughout history. If you're born on the Nile River uh, in 2000 BC, you have economic opportunities that aren't available to somebody who's born in the middle of the Saharan Desert. And so that's one factor, just location. So, so think of it this way. In a world unlike ours that has zero discrimination, there will be unequal outcomes based on something as, as boring and mundane as geography. Another example, uh, Asian Americans, it, the last study that has been reported, their median age is around about 50, 50 years old. The median age of Hispanic Americans is in the 20s. And so if you just take something as, as simple as that, an age disparity, how many candles are on your birthday cake? Let's ask this question. What's the likelihood that Asian Americans are gonna have equal outcomes with Hispanic Americans based on median age? Because there's certain high paying positions there's high caliber careers that in your 20s, you just, you just aren't going to reach. And so we could look at an example like that from a social justice B perspective and say, well, that's clearly, you know, anti-Hispanic racism, because look at the vast disparity between Hispanic Americans and uh, Asian Americans. And, and I would just say, no, there, there's other factors. What in the book I call less damning explanations that apply in so many cases. T take another one. This is an interesting example from Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he's the author of a book called Outliers and Tipping Point and a lot of other bestsellers. He shows how in the NHL, the Hockey League, the National Hockey League, that there's a vast disparity between people born on the front end of the calendar and people born on the back end. And so purely what your birthday is will have a disparate outcome with no discrimination, no ageism, no vicious evil or sin going on, because when little kids are in their hockey leagues at age seven, if I'm born in January and I hit the cutoff for signups uh, versus somebody who's born in December, there's gonna be a huge difference in development that's actually gonna have an impact for when these kids are being picked for all-star teams with better coaching and things like that. Now, all that's to say, it's an illusion to think that things would be equitable if only there was no discrimination. There are countless examples of inequities that have nothing to do with sinful discrimination. Now, I'm getting into some nuances here that are completely banned from the social justice B conversation. If I were to even cite those in many contexts, I would immediately be branded, you know, a racist, a bigot, a phobic, you, you name it. But if, as Christians, we're going to be discerning about this. We have to be willing to ask those questions so we can parse out which disparities are the result of discrimination. And for the record, I believe many are. 
I believe there are disparities and even racial disparities in this country now that are the result of sinful discrimination. But right now at this cultural moment, those nuances are thrown out the window. And so you have a lot of disparities that really have nothing to do with racial discrimination that contribute to this narrative that everything is racist, everything is white supremacist, everything is patriarchal oppression all the time. And that sends us on a road to, to a false gospel. I, I agree. Um, I was having a conversation with someone and um, they brought up two things. Like, yes, there are disparities. and dis- I mean, we, we see disparities in nature. So you have different trees. You see disparities in people. You have tall people and short people. I'm 5'9". Krista's of an undisclosed height that is a lot smaller than me. Um, you know, so you you see these, these disparities, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are a breach against God's moral character. And I think that yeah. that's something to consider. You know, do these disparities breach God's moral character? When we look at something like redlining, where it's clear partiality toward a group, that is a disparity that as Christians, we can use our voice to speak into and say, hey, biblically, we have a precedent for not upholding this partiality, for not upholding this disparity. But there are also uh, things that, you know, don't don't breach God's moral character that are disparities. Another thing yeah. that um, that came up recently in a conversation was looking at the NBA and how disproportionate the dis- the NBA is for blacks than whites, and how you have yeah. I think it's like seventy five percent of the NBA is like black, something like it's a really high number, and yet blacks black men only make up six to seven percent of the population. Is that a yeah. disparity that we should be talking about if we're going to throw everything into the, the bucket of racial disparities? Yeah, yeah. Great, great question. So uh, let me give just a few other examples. In addition to the NBA, you have 22 of the 29 astronauts in the original Apollo space program, 22 of the 29 were firstborn. People yeah, for living the first in the born. U.S. They were <laughs> hey, as the youngest born... You Sorry. Triggered me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, people living in the U.S. experience 90% of the world's tornadoes. So if you're an American, 90% of the world's tornadoes, tornadoes are coming after you. Asians are underrepresented, underrepresented in the NBA, NFL, NHL, and Major League Baseball. Women are overrepresented in healthcare and overrepresented, overrepresented in attaining university degrees and in setting consumer trends that determine the actions of the world's biggest corporations. Men make up an overwhelming majority of soldiers who perish on battlefields. Men have a virtual monopoly on bricklaying industry, uh, on the plumbing industry, the carpentry industries. Jewish people are less than 1% of the world's population. They receive 22% of the Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 32% of the Nobel Prizes in medicine, 32% uh, of the Nobel Prizes in physics. Uh, And then, you know, the the list could go on and on. But the fact is, like you're pointing out, Monique, there are a ton of disparities that really have nothing to do with injustice. And again, that's where the issue lies. There's a lot of Christians right now. I mean, take one commonly cited factor. Black Americans are turned down twice as much as white Americans for home loans. Now, based on the tone of this cultural moment, 
we can easily look at a stat like that and say that is systemic injustice. That is systemic racism. But what happens when you zoom out? You just take one step backwards and recognize the fact that white Americans are turned down twice as often as Asian and Pacific Island Americans for the same home loans. And so if we're going to be consistent, we'd have to say, well, there are systemic anti-white racism uh, and systemic uh, Asian supremacy in this country based purely on the outcomes that are disparate. And so take uh, Indian Americans uh, as compared with, uh, linked up with Jewish Americans and compare and contrast that with Protestant Americans. The average income disparity, the income disparity between a American Protestant and an American Jewish person or an American Indian person, uh, the income disparity is somewhere in the range of 150K a year income versus about 40K. That's about three times as much, that disparity. And so for operating from social justice B premises, we'd have to say there is systemic uh, anti-Protestantism in this country based purely on those disparate outcomes. And, and so all I'm saying, like I've spent three years deep diving into these numbers, and I would highly recommend to your listeners, uh, rather than just take kind of the headlines that, oh, well, look at the wealth gap between white and black Americans, look at the, the gender pay gap between male and female, and then automatically jump to damning conclusions. The whole system is patriarchal. The whole system is white supremacist. Do your homework. Because if you don't, you're going to get duped into a version of justice that would have you seeing it in areas where it doesn't exist. And what's important, a lot of people are going to hear me and say, oh, well, Williams is just writing off the reality of racism. Williams is just writing off the reality of sexism in the country. I'm not. I'm saying if we aren't discerning, if we aren't willing to do our homework and get to the bottom of issues, then we think we're fighting the real issue when we're really just boxing a ghost of the issue. And so I, I highly recommend, Monique, I've been trying to push this on you for months now. Read Thomas Sowell. Thank read you. Read Holman Hughes. <laughs> read Shelby Steele. Thank read, you. And also, just to be fair, read Ta-Nehisi Coates. Read Ibram X. Kendi. Read Robin DiAngelo and see on whose side are the facts and evidence. Who's pushing just an ideology and who's citing reality? That's an important question that Christians right now aren't taking very seriously. And so a lot of us are getting duped into an ideology from a good desire, a good intention. We don't want to be racist. We don't want to be part of a white oppressive supremacist system. Uh, but we need to do a lot more discernment. And I think Seoul is a great place to start. I, I agree with that. And you know what? On that last point, I'm going to go ahead and fan you. I'm going to bring it out of <laughs> Thank retirement. You. Thank you. But, you know, for this week, I'm going to go ahead. You got I'm I'm on you on I'm with you on that. Um what I would what what I would say in addition to that is yes, you need to not in the way of like sounding social justicey, you know, you there is work that needs to be done. There is education that needs to be gained so that you're not just blindly following down this path and look into other reasons why disparities may occur. So redlining yeah. may have created a disparity. Redlining 50 years ago, what is that what did what did 50 years ago have to do with today? How much of that 
is still in play versus how much of people's choices are actually in play. If you're not teaching your kids about poverty and about money and how to budget, I don't know that you can actually say that redlining is the reason why I'm in poverty. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So something I would recommend to your listeners, there's a brilliant conversation. You can look it up on YouTube called Barriers to Black Progress. And Barriers to Black Progress is a symposium. It's a conversation with uh, several black scholars from a range of fields. Uh, It's Jason Riley. It's um, Coleman Hughes. It's Glenn Lowry. and, and several others, and, and they walk through a lot of these questions that you're kind of, they're verboten. You, you aren't allowed to ask these questions seriously in today's political climate without immediately branding yourself. You know, I was branded this morning a slave master for some of the things I said on Sean's podcast. That, that's just the level we're at now is, is name calling. But if we don't push past the name calling into looking at, at reality, we think we're doing justice and we aren't. And so in this particular podcast, uh, one of the contributors runs a series of schools in New York. And he says there's there's three factors that in the literature, it's called the success sequence. You do these three things in this order, 98% of Americans will not end up in poverty. You will end up middle class. Number one, finish high school. Number two, get a job, any job. Number three, wait till you get married to have babies. If you do those three things in that order, finish high school, get a job, any job, wait until you get married to make babies, you, to the tune of 98%, will not end up poor in this country. That, that insight from the uh, Barriers to Black Progress conversation has been reinforced by deep research from the Brookings Institute. The Brookings Institute is not like some kind of right-wing uh, conspiracy group. They're a left-leaning think tank. And they did their homework on it because they were looking at something we don't talk about now. There are astounding levels of success in Black America, unprecedented. And they're trying to figure out, like, where where's that coming from? And they reached the same conclusion, the success sequence. Finish high school, get a job, any job, and wait until you get married to make babies. And 98% will not end up in poverty. And those facts are important as we're thinking about things like the racial wealth gap in terms of how much is the legacy of slave slavery? How much is the legacy of Jim Crow and segregation? How much is the legacy of redlining what we're see- seeing today? And I'm not saying there's no impact that that's had. I actually think there is. But we need to have an honest, open conversation again. Otherwise, we're just boxing boogeymen of real issues. I think that's a really important point. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought that up. Because first of all, I want to summarize a very important point that you guys have been making as a big picture thing. Because I don't want it to escape our, our listeners. And that is that it's important to differentiate. The disparity might not be the most, the best way to detect whether there's an injustice. We have to. We can notice the disparity, but we've got to dig into the details yeah. of the disparity to figure out if it's an actual violation of God's moral character. So I think that's yeah. a an extremely I, important point that I do not see a lot of conversation happening around. I agree, and and to Tad's point of of like justice being giving someone their due, I feel like if if 
people are being given their due and there's still disparity there. We need to look at some other things. We can't continue to say, you know, this is a injustice based on race necessarily. Like what are, what are some, there might be an injustice there somewhere, you know, but maybe, maybe it goes down to people's personal choice as well, or maybe there's knowledge that they don't have, or, you know, like something else is amiss, but I feel like so often we come to the table with there's a disparity. So, so it must be race-based because there's a disparity, like poverty, um, sentencing, which I'm still kind of on the fence about sentencing, but you know, education, housing, everything comes down to this racial disparity. And I'm not one to say that I don't believe that there are racial disparities at play. I'm just saying that we can't be so quick to, um, jump on the, the bandwagon of racism that we have to really investigate and make sure that, what we are calling disparities are true disparities. And if they are true disparities, are they breaches in God's moral character? Yeah. And I think that's a really important point. And it's just sad that we live in a cultural moment where having that sane conversation isn't even almost allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The the other thing I want to, I'm so glad Thaddeus that you brought up this, this, these uh, kind of issues of for success. I've, I actually watched that YouTube video that you're mentioning a couple of weeks ago, and it is a very important conversation. So I'm glad you brought it up, but these kind of these three steps of success and I, Monique and I have had some private conversations and about this. And I've said, you know, why doesn't justice look more like having classes to help support young people to finish high school? you know, in a local church or why, why don't we focus on these three things that are data driven that we could do as Christians to help shore up? Like, could we have some conversations to help engage young people in getting jobs or becoming entrepreneurs or understanding financial literacy? I mean, these are actual things that I feel like should be part of a discussion about justice rather than just trying to fix wealth disparities, but I don't see anybody having those conversations. So maybe I'm just, because if we talked about some of these other things, the wealth disparity itself may begin to curve. Yeah. 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 I think you're, you're hitting on some, some major issues here. Let let me just speak into one or two of those. There's kind of a perception right now that, that black lives matter as an organization, not as a, as a slogan or a truth claim, but Black Lives Matter represents, quote, the black voice, the black voice. And if you veer from that, then clearly you're just showing your own either white fragility or your white supremacy. Those are kind of the only options. Either you acknowledge you're racist, in which case you're a racist, or you deny you're racist, in which case obviously you're racist, right? It's this, this catch 22 is kind of this kind of Kafka trap that we're caught in. Well, think of it this way. I, I made this point uh, three weeks ago. I was in Phoenix speaking in an event and I shared Monique's story. I'm sure many of the listeners are, are familiar with that and shared just a few statistics that I found when I was researching for the book, uh, confronting injustice without compromising truth. These were some things that just shocked me in my research. So, so let me just break down a few of these, uh, a few of these Harvard's uh, Harvard scholar, Ethan Foss found that 30% of the, 
of the American black community at most, 30% at most, believe the system is stacked against them. According to Pew Research, less than one in three black people without college degrees believe that their race has made it harder for them to succeed, just 29%. Uh, the stats go on. 60% of the black community in America believe that, quote, that, quote, race has not been a factor in their success or failures. According to, there's a nonpartisan research group called PRRI. Uh, they did a recent study that showed that a greater share of black and Hispanic uh, Americans, more than white Americans, um, agree that, quote, children from different social classes have adequate opportunities to be successful. Uh, blacks are more likely than whites to say that a lack of motivation to, to work hard may be holding blacks back. So more blacks believe that than whites. Uh, and, and so I, I, show out those, I share those stats, and there was an, another article that just came out recently in a sociology journal uh, by Musa Al-Garbi that shows that what we think is, quote, the black voice is actually the white liberal voice mm -hmm. by a substantial margin. And this is where a lot of the church thinks, hey, we're stepping up. We're standing up for the black voice. It's like, be careful, because that voice is actually the white liberal voice uh, based on the, on the hard evidence. And, and so I think that's an important component to throw into this conversation, uh, because otherwise Christians are thinking, oh, I'm muting the black voice. There's a long history of muting the black voice by white evangelicals. We need to prevent that history. But in citing Robin DiAngelo and citing Ibram X. Kendi and citing Ta-Nehisi Coates and folks like that, it just might be that we're highlighting a voice that is, I mean, it's frankly condescending to say something like the black voice about 35 million plus Americans. I have, I just said it the other day. Um, it, to me, the, the worst voice for the black voice, if you even want to consider there being a black voice, I think that just leads into tribalism, but the worst voice for the black voice is the woke voice, the woke white voice, because I, I, yeah, like I just see so much coming out of the the white woke movement, if I if I can call it that, that yeah. really isn't in line with to me what black people need, um, especially yeah. like blacks living in places like Flint, Michigan, or you know South Central Los Angeles, or in you know really impoverished areas and dealing with a lot of stuff. It's like, well, you know, to to me as I observe the woke white person, it's a lot of things that. You know, I could see maybe trying to be compassionate or, you know, wanting to to help someone out. But in reality, if you don't understand what's really happening within a community and what all those things are that go into play in that, it's not a big help. And if we're just creating more systems and programs, I don't know that that's going to be a help either. So, yeah, the woke white yeah. voice to me, I'm like, yeah. The struggle is real. It is real. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because to me, it just shows that there are even, you know, numbers that support that, that, you know, no, these things might not be as big as what leftist media is putting out there. Um, and, and yet people are grabbing onto it, especially within evangelicalism. They're like grabbing on it and wanting to run with it. And it might be a false narrative. I want to ask yeah. uh, Thaddeus a question that I've struggled to understand, and, and maybe you can help me. And that is, I'm noticing that there is kind of this 
word swap that's happening, and I think it's very subtle, of equality versus equity. And I used to kind of think these were the same things, but now I'm realizing they're actually not the same things. And so maybe you can help me try to understand that a little bit of of what is behind those words. Yeah, that's really helpful. So uh, equality, from a theological perspective, means that you are equally an image bearer of God, regardless of your social status, regardless of your skin tone, regardless of your gender. And so it's a sense, and, and we can take it even a step further. And, and Paul's letter to the Galatians, when he says, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Female, There's neither slave nor free. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. He, he's getting at this deep truth that your in Christ identity gives you a new family identity, a new sense of who your brothers and sisters are beyond tribalism, um, that, that transcends the hierarchies of the first century. So in the first century, you had real misogyny. You had real women are second-class citizens. You had real racism in both directions between Jews, Gentiles, with Samaritans being thrown under the bus in the middle. Uh, you, you had real economic discrimination going on in between. And so Paul says, look, when you find your core identity in Christ, that gives you a way that no cultural ideology can to look across the Lord's table and say, that person who looks different than me, that person who maybe has a Y chromosome that I don't, that person whose melatonin levels are maybe higher than mine, that person who has more zeros in their bank account, that's my brother. That's my sister. We are family. We are community. We're brothers and sisters worshiping the same father, inhabited by the same spirit, redeemed by the same Jesus. And so I would say equality in the broadest sense means that we all bear the image of God. In the in Christ sense, it means that we are all equally depraved and all equally need a savior. And we have we are all equally looking to Jesus for our core identity that gives us that sense of family. Equity is very different. Equity is what we were talking about a little bit ago, that if the outcomes aren't identical or identical-ish, then clearly there's some kind of evil, vile form of discrimination at play. And so in, in the book, I give this example. I say, let, let's just run a little thought experiment. Let's say everybody in America got $1 million deposited into their bank account tomorrow morning. That sounds fun, right? We all get million dollars, boom. Let it be all so, of- Lord. <laughs> everybody's equal playing field. Your debt's erased. Everybody's, you know, got a, a brand new house. Everybody's got a Tesla in the garage. Everybody's exactly level playing field. How long could we take a break from protesting inequity? And I would say it would be less of a vacation for protesting inequity and more of a bathroom break. It would take about five minutes. Why? Because some people with their million dollars are going to go and say, invest or start a business 
or pour their money into technology or, or what have you. Other people might say, hey, I got a million bucks. I'm going to go hog wild and, you know, buy myself a Rolexus, a Lexus made out of Rolexes and, and flaunt that down the street. And other people are going to say like, oh man, I like pizza. I've never had a thousand dollars worth of pizza. Like people are going to make different choices because people are different. Newsflash. And so within a day, you're already going to see inequities start to manifest. And if you were to slice out those inequities based on demographics, you're going to see demographic inequities start to manifest. And so at that point, somebody who's committed to ending inequity rather than champion equality, somebody who's committed to ending inequity is going to say, well, we need to swoop in again and redistribute everything so the playing field is equal. And within 10 minutes, you're going to see inequities result again because choices actually matter. In a biblical worldview, choices matter. And different choices yield different outcomes. And so the, the government or the politicians are going to have to step in again and redistribute. And this is going to have to keep going until eventually you need the government to enforce sameness. Because difference will yield different outcomes. And so this is something a lot of my Christian brothers and sisters I found have yet to wrap their head around. That if your goal is equity, it inevitably, and history has taught us this, especially in the last hundred years, if your goal is equity, it inevitably leads to totalitarian government. Why? Because different people making different choices yields different outcomes. If different outcomes are evil, then you can't have people being different and making different choices. Therefore, you need some top-down authoritarian government to cram an ideology down to everybody's throat if you're going to realize your goal of equity. And so that, that's a huge issue, and I encourage people to read Alexander Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, uh, read... Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, World Torn Apart, read Frederick Hayek, read some of these sources, because right now we're just being duped into that same idea that equity is the goal, and we don't realize the road we're headed down when we start there and how it leads us qualitatively further from a biblical view of reality. Just between me and you, Thaddeus, uh, there's a certain person in the room who used to believe in equity <laughs> And we used to have a lot of discussions about it. Yep. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me switch roles here. Um, what was it for you that was kind of the light bulb moment where you realized, like, if I'm defining justice as equity versus recognizing the equal value of every image bearer of God, if I make that bait and switch, then I'm on a road away from a biblical view of reality in on a road away from actually helping people. What, what was it for you that kind of. I don't know that it was, that it was any one moment. I think it was a lot of different conversations between Krista and I, a lot of hard conversations of, you know, how are you defining equity? Why do you think that everything should be 100% equal? And how do we get to complete and total equity among everyone you know, on the planet, what would that look like? Um, what, how do you take into account people's personal choices? 
So I think it was it was a lot of different questions that were asked in many different ways that helped me yeah. get to a place of being like, you know what, we have to also count um, take into accountability the idea that everyone gets to make their own choice. Yeah, I I think for me, like the the thing I kept asking Monique was, well, if we are going to have a free society, we have to we're going to have to allow for people to make mistakes or to make choices that will have a hard result for their lives. You know, that that's just how it's going to be. Cause there's, there's two basic options. There's coercion or there's, there's choice. I mean, yeah. you can get into nuances of differences of those, but I mean, those are basically the options available. And I think that when Monique and I first started talking she kind of had a view of wealth redistribution, but she didn't really ever think about the mechanism of how it was going to happen. And so when I started asking her, well, what would you do exactly? And then that, that kind of led us down some paths of really trying to ferret that out. And then I said, well, so in your job, would you be okay if, if the government came and took 70% of your paycheck? Well, then that wasn't so cool. And so, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a lot of discussions along those lines. We had a a lot of good chatter on the the chat box. I want to ask a few, just go to a few questions from our viewers. Uh, But first I have to go to a comment. Because this comment literally almost made me laugh out loud. Um, No, I have to, oh, please, I hope I can find it. Um, No, it's on Facebook. And his name is... Let me see. Let me see. Hopefully I can find it because I responded to it and I it just blessed my little life. Um, my Oh, Janner. I, I'm hoping I pronounced that right. Bestwick. Sharks are racist and must be eliminated. 93% of attacks are against men. 95% of attacks are against whites. Something must be done. And I was like, you know, I'm safe. And I just, but I mean, that also to me just leads to some of the, the ridiculousness I think of when, when I think of like conversations about disparity, you know, like not everything that seems to be a disparity is truly like. It might be a disparity, but doesn't mean it's automatically an injustice or a violation of God's character. That's the important question. I'm not going in the ocean though. So there you go. Okay. (laughs) Let's get to some comments and. All right. Um. I think one thing, uh, boy, I hope I can find it back. Um, I think it was from our friend Caleb was saying, oh, here it is. It seems it's on YouTube. It seems that it's from Engaged Truth, which is a podcast of Caleb. It seems that those that advocate CRT are saying that capitalism is the evil cause and they are assuming this disparity itself is an injustice. And I think that's just an kind of important sort of thing that lurks in the background is the economic approach that we take and kind of pitting capitalism versus Marxism. The, the thing is with the social justice conversation, it's almost like you have to know your numbers on so many different disciplines. There's prison reform and there's, incarceration and policing issues and economic issues. It's, it's a lot. So. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. Do you have any other comments you want to bring up? Um, no. Well, but there, go ahead. Let, let me just uh, quickly on that that question because socialism really is trending um, with a lot of Christians too, and capitalism is really kind of made the the scapegoat for a lot of society's issues. I would just recommend to any viewers watch the Acton Institute, which has been doing work on this for a really, really long time. They have a great resource out there called Poverty Cure. Uh, And in Poverty Cure, they travel the world. You can look it up on YouTube. And they go into uh, many developing world places. And they show that once you create free markets, that people are able to tap into another aspect of the Imago Dei, bearing God's image, which were created, if you read the opening chapters of Genesis, to make something of the world. God makes the world, and then he passes the buck to us and says, now make something of the world. Be fruitful. Be multiply. Add to the net beauty. Add to the net goodness. Add to the net truth in the universe. And so Acton has done a phenomenal job in their, uh, in their Poverty Cure series to take you through these people from all different skin shades and all different economic statuses to show that when you do that, when you recognize yourself as an image bearer and you have the economic freedom um, to be innovative, uh, to be an entrepreneur, how people actually rise out of poverty in free market contexts all over the world. It's really, really helpful. It was a big eye opener for me uh, because right now people assume, oh, because capitalism, the term itself is so um, dirty to a lot of people. Capitalism is the problem. Capitalism is to blame. Capitalism creates these vast disparities. Um, That's why I prefer the term freedom, economic freedom, free markets, because history has shown us again and again, especially in the last hundred years. Let me just um, give some some basic facts on this. According to the international bestseller called the, The Black Book of Communism, the quest to achieve economic equality, um, you know, what uh, Krista was calling equity uh, just a couple minutes ago, uh, has resulted in over 100 million casualties in the 20th century alone. 100 million casualties in the 20th century alone. Uh, nevertheless, several studies show that support for socialism is trending high in the United States. Uh, particularly among younger generations. Those are the same generations in which one-third believe that more people perished or under George W. Bush than under Joseph Stalin. Almost half are unfamiliar with Mao Zedong. Uh, and the 50 million victims of his plan for economic equality. And a majority don't even know the meaning of the word gulag. And so if it's truly about ending oppression, why are so many people committed to what I call Social justice be quick to fall for the rhetoric of compassion uh, in these political visions that have led to oppression and the termination of more image bearers of God in the last century than any other system. And so we need to be able, as Christians, to state with clarity um, why socialism, which is, by the way, baked into the Black Lighters, Black. Lives Matter movement's founders, again, not the phrase, the organization, Uh, just this last week and a half, one of the founders said, we are trained Marxists. We are trained Marxists. We know what we're doing. 
and they're trying to institute Marxist ideology. If as Christians, we don't know the carnage that that has unleashed in the last hundred years, and we're getting duped by that movement, then <laughs> what we're calling justice is a far cry from biblical justice. Good point. Now, I know um, we're getting close to our time. I just have one more question. This one came from a, a viewer, Glenn Mayer, and I think it's really good. Um, not that I don't think the other questions are good. I just think that this one could be very helpful. Um, how do we play catch up with where did it go? How do we play catch up with social justice with the social justice B definition since the church has not done enough to promote social justice A? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, just a few thoughts. I would be careful just in the framing of the question to think about how much have we imbibed a narrative that says Christians have been on the wrong side of history. Christians don't care about the poor. Christians are conservatives. Christians by and large tend to be conservative and Republican and Republicans just care about greed. They just care about corporations. They don't really care about the little guy. That that's, that's the story we're told. Uh, and I'm sure there's, maybe some kernels of truth in it. But when I was uh, researching for the book, uh, Confronting Injustice, let me just throw a few numbers your way. Uh, number one, 58% of U.S. adults provided food to a poor person or family. So 58% of just an average American compared with 75% of practicing Christians. So th three out of four practicing Christians in America versus 58%. 72% of Christians directly donated resources such as clothing, furniture to the poor, uh, compared with just 64% of non-Christians. So 72 compared to 64. 62% of Christians spent a significant amount of time praying for poor people uh, versus 33% beyond the church. 47% of Christians gave their personal time to serve the needy. So almost half compared with just 29% of non-Christians and nearly twice as many Christians volunteered to an organization to serve the poor uh, in other countries and traveled outside the U.S. to help the disadvantaged. And so again, I'm just getting at the premise of the question, which is Christians haven't been doing social justice A, uh, and so that's why so many people are turning to social justice B. I think there's a lot of spin, a lot of media spin that we bought into there. Just one more uh, quick study. Uh, from a non-religious research group, looked at a dozen faith communities around Philadelphia. They looked at 10 Protestant churches, one Catholic parish, one Jewish synagogue, and they found that they used a 54-point metric to determine the kind of economic impact these religious congregations had on the surrounding communities. The results were astounding. 12 congregations in Philadelphia brought $50,577,098 of economic benefits to their neighborhoods in a single year, just through charity and loving the community and education programs and things like that. And so there's this popular narrative that just irks me every time I hear it. Christians have been, you know, completely naive to injustice. They don't really care. All they care about is their own personal peace and affluence. They don't give a rip about the poor. Statistically, it's, that's exactly backwards for, for understandable reasons. If you believe your calling as an individual and as a church community is to love the poor and disadvantaged, you're going to step up to that call. If you don't believe that, 
then who's the next biggest entity you can imagine? Well, it's got to be the government. So now this shapes our conversation so that it's only the people who rally behind big government solutions. It's only people who rally behind massive redistributive policies. They're on the side of the poor and the oppressed. But if you're on the side of individual economic freedom so you can do it yourself, then clearly you're some kind of misanthrope. You're some kind of enemy of humanity who doesn't really give a rip about the poor. Uh, so again, I'm just I'm questioning the premise of the question itself. I think there yeah. is a whole lot of social justice a happening. We just aren't allowed to hear about it, or we're conditioned to think that doesn't really count as social justice because it doesn't resort to government to fix the problems. Not to say the church couldn't do better, by the way. Of course, but can. but that is so powerful because that's what I've been saying and thinking for a very long time. And I have never heard anybody else say it that way. So I really appreciate that, that word that is, I want to encourage all of our viewers to go be on the lookout for Dr. Williams book. It's coming out uh, very soon and it's going to be called confronting injustice injustice. without compromising truth. You might see a little something written in there by me. Um, Yes. Yes. But co-author, and also, uh, our friend Edwin Ramirez is is featured in the book yes, as well. Yes, Neil Shinvi. Yeah, yes, it's an awesome, say. awesome book. Huh, Sam? Say yes. Um, so, if you aren't following the Center for Biblical Unity, follow us on Facebook. Um, we will definitely, as soon as it drops, um, we will have be- that up on our on yeah. our website and on our Facebook page, so that everyone knows what's ha- what's happening with the book because it is awesome and it is something that everyone should be reading. Or um, to uh, quote our friend Elisa Childers, "It's fire." It, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. All right. Thank you, Thaddeus, Thank so, you much so much for coming, making the time Thank for you. us. It was such a blessing. We're getting so many great comments and feedback on the chat and how helpful this has been to people. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I love what you guys are doing. Spread the word for Center for Biblical Unity. I I was just having a conversation right before the show started uh, with someone who was saying, man, things are so intense right now. And how do we think about racism? How do we think about uh, BLM? How do we think about sexism? How do we think about all this stuff? What are the resources out there? Because so many Christians are saying, well, go check out Be the Bridge. Go check out um, what's the, uh, go check out, pass the mic, uh, go check out the witness, go check out all these resources. And I just got to say what you guys are doing at center for biblical unity is exactly what the church in 2020 needs, because instead of just pandering to cultural trends, instead of just saying what, you know, will win you the applause of the masses, instead of just saying all the right things, You guys are committed to the authority of scripture, to the Godhood of God, to the gospel being first. But that doesn't mean that you guys don't care about injustice. Mm -hmm. You don't just say, well, it's the gospel or, you know, to hell with the oppressed. That's not your mentality. It's let's do justice, but let's do it with God first, with the gospel central. uh, And and I just love that about you. So to all the listeners, shout it from the rooftops. What they are up to is the real deal. So God bless you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. All right. Bye. We have. See you later. See ya.
and he, he cool people. He yeah. cool people. I can get with that. Yeah. I can't get with that. Um okay. somebody asked if we can leak a pre a little uh, just a little bit of the book, like leak a sneak copy. <laughs> <laughs> can I just get chapters one and seven? <laughs> uh, well, that's, we'll, we'll that's awesome. definitely keep watching Amazon when the pre order's available. We'll yeah. we'll be posting about it. You can rest assured of that. Uh is there any other comments you wanted to go to uh that you saw? Um you know, there is there is one, and I was going to save it till the very end. I don't know if we're going... No, go ahead. Okay. Um, it's on Facebook, um, and I'm not even sure we need to put it up, but um, I will reference it. It says, Monique doesn't get to talk very much. And so I was wondering, like, do y'all think, did you think that they were long-winded and I just didn't get a chance to, like, say what I wanted to say? Was I, you know, like, trying to, you know, play this double Dutch thing? That's a jump rope. That's a style of jump rope, in case you don't know. Um, I do think that I am I can be, especially when I feel um, like, oh, I don't really know what this topic is. So you get us on a topic of theology, I'll sit there and be like, crickets. Um, just because I usually tend to feel more intimidated around well, things learning. that that I don't know a lot about. Yes, and I am learning. Um, so there's that, but I do want to offer, um, truth to, you know, all of this, or at least how I see my viewpoint on, on things, especially on this conversation tonight. Um, I think I spoke when I wanted to speak and I said what I wanted to say, and I was clear about this is what I want to say. And this is what I don't want to say. One of the things that, um, I have wrestled with and, and have had conversations about is the idea that white people need to also speak truth and, and use their own voice. Because you can't just wait for a person of color to do that. Um, And so I've had conversations off and on this week along those same lines about how do I use my voice? I think on one end, I get people who are like, you just speaking for the white person. They just using your voice. And then I get other people who are like, and this was a conversation this week. Well, I only want to talk to you because you're black. I want you to use your voice this way. Um, You know, it's a real struggle. But for someone, you know, and I'm definitely wanting to assume the best that you were like, you know, they just talked over Monique or maybe she had something to say and, um, you know, she didn't get the chance to. And so I can take that and we can, you know, think about that feedback. But, um, if it was, if it was in the line of, you know, I had to silence my voice or something like that, that just isn't true. That isn't true of the way that we run our show. It isn't true about how we collaborate. Um, it isn't true about Thaddeus. I know him off of camera. You know, it, it, this wasn't just a, you know, hey, you have a book coming out, so let's interview you. He is a friend. Um, that isn't true about my relationship with Krista. And even though I don't necessarily feel the need to defend um, any of those relationships, I do want people to understand that it isn't a thing of, you know, Monique doesn't get to speak because that's just not true. And if you know me off camera, or if you've watched the the show more than once, you know that I speak pretty clearly and I'm pretty clear about my thoughts. And if I'm not clear about a thought, you know, I'll process that and, you know, ask questions or I just won't say anything. So I wanted to to address that. That was it. Okay. Um, I think that there's a there's a comment on YouTube that I just want to address really quick. Uh, it's kind of an unusual comment from someone who says that they're 17 and they're on the, the show right now been bullied and they're struggling with suicidal thoughts i'm just going to take the comment at face value that you're not a troll you're a real person and you really are 17 these are all assumptions um i just want to say right now that uh melissa i just want you to know there's a whole bunch of people on the chat here 
they're all going to pray for you right now. And I'm just going to ask the Lord to lead you to someone in your life that can be a positive voice for life. Because as we've been talking on the show tonight, um, you know, you're created in the image of God and you have value. And, and um, I don't know if it's of any help to you at all, but I struggled with suicidal thoughts myself for many, many years. And I know that can be a very dark place to be in. Um, but I want you to also know that Jesus loves you and he is inviting you into a relationship with him if you haven't already entered into that and that he can be a presence with you and just know that your life has a supernatural design and purpose and God will work with you on helping you find that purpose. And that's what kept me alive every day was I knew that God had a purpose for my life and that I was going to keep moving forward and walk into that purpose. So don't think that just because Monique and I are here, like we've had this this amazing life with everything laid out in front of us. We've both been through our fair share of difficulties and hard thoughts in our life. And I just want to encourage you today to um, reach out for help. Uh, reach out for, if you don't know anybody, there's hotlines you can call, but get professional help and, and try to get stabilized as you are also learning how to walk with the Lord. And he will meet you in that. I promise you that. And everybody on the chat right now, I know a lot of these people who watch our show are really strong Christians, and they're all going to pray for you right now um, as a result of, of you being here, okay? So, yeah, everyone's stepping up for that. Awesome. Okay, so we have a big announcement. Are you ready for the big announcement? People yes. Who, people who stayed to the end are going to hear the big announcement. That's you if you're still watching. Okay, we are partnering with our friends at Women in Apologetics for the first, what we hope will be the first annual UP conference sponsored by the Center for Biblical Unity. And UP stands for Uniting People, where we are going to lay out our vision each year for building racial unity in the church. So... Um, you can go visit the womeninapologetics.com page, click on events, and you will see the UP conference as one of the options. Now, registration opens on Tuesday. The conference itself is going to be Friday and Saturday, July 17th and uh, July 18th. So it's coming up in just a few weeks. And so you're going to not want to miss out. We're going to be giving three Brand new talks that we've never done before. Y'all pray for us. So it's all new content. So if you came to our previous conference with the Mama Bears, um, just know that this is going to be new content. The number one question we're getting is, what is a vision for the way forward? And that is what this conference is going to be. Monique, why don't you share a little bit about your vision for the UP Conference and, and why we're starting this? Well, the UP Conference for me is a way to, to gather family. Um, I think this week uh, on the Center for Biblical Unity page, I'll be talking about family. Um, just a little tidbit here and there, and and it'll probably be more of a live stream. Um, the, what is the concept of family? And, and once we are in Christ, how do we work together as family? Because we're considered brothers and sisters. And so, yeah, we are uniting people. We are coming together 
as family, to talk about unity, to talk about um, what are the next steps forward. And yeah, we're just going to get together and we're going to have some family time. And that I think that's more than anything, just the vision for for it. And to talk about the biblical the biblical view of race, um, Chris is going to really break down the the biblical response um, to race. Is race a biblical concept? How do we thread that out and walk that out? I'm going to be talking about moving forward. Like, what are some steps that we as family can take to move forward among the family? Because I see a lot of division just in the church. You know, before we think we can take anything out into culture, we need to be cool within the church, you know? So how do we do that? And yeah, it's going to it's gonna be like a family reunion, a little meeting time. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be calling it the Up Conference and Uniting People. And we really hope that you will come. And it's at the womeninapologetics.com website. Just click on events. And you can scroll to the UP conference. And, and again, registration is opening on Tuesday. We really need your help. Help us get the good word out there. If you know your pastor mm-hmm. is searching for resources, um, encourage him to come. Encourage him to invite, invite his leadership team. We want to just spread the net as wide as we can. Uh, we're going to be doing it um, in an in a unlimited seating capacity. So yes. we want to encourage you. It's not going to be limited like the Mama Bear conference was. There won't be a cap. So we need your help, though, to, to just help spread the good word for the conference. And we want to really start some momentum to change the conversation yes. about race to a more positive, uplifting, and biblical position. Yes. So... That's that. So well, you seem like you have a lot more clarity than I do. I'm just like, we're going to get together and have a good time. It's going to be a family meeting. She is like, no, the devil is a lie. We're going to get together. Yes. Yes. I like it. I like it. Oh, gosh. All right. So I'll fan you. I'll fan you. Okay. I see the vision. Yes. Make it plain. All right. In other news, we're recruiting volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned. We will have a help wanted sign out next week. We need help. (laughs) So pray for us. We have a lot of things in the pipeline that are coming, and um, we just are talking to the Lord and talking to each other as a family and seeing what we can do. So we thank you for your prayers. We thank you for all your interactions and your questions. We love you, and we just ask you to to be an ambassador for unity, Yeah. um, to, to to bring peaceful, respectful conversations wherever you go, and honor one another honor one another Start from a place of honor yeah so know your faith live your faith teach your faith to others yeah. that's really what we're trying to be up to here at all that's it. and if you right. haven't gotten your shirt yet you can do that it's make sure in. to get your shirt centerforbiblicalunity.com yes. backslash merch it is there get your shirt we're gonna have like a shirt day i think that's what we need to do we need to have like a shirt day where everybody <laughs> wears their shirt It's like Unity Day. There it is. Yes. All right, my friends. Take care. We love you. And God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com. And find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.